Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, my name is Dr. Olga Sobolev. I work um, at the LSC Language Center, and I'm honored to chair this public lecture with um, Professor Daniel Everett, who currently is uh, the Dean of um, Art and Sciences at Bentley University, Massachusetts. And uh, to start with, as an introduction, we are going to play a bit of video to create the atmosphere and uh, uh, introduce the speaker to the audience. Jesus died. He died for the sins of the world. He died on the cross so that these people could live in heaven forever. And if we don't take the message to them, the Christians who do have the message, we are failing him and disrespecting the offer that he made on the cross for everyone else. I was raised in Southern California and I came from a very uh, blue collar family. My stepfather worked in a packing shed, my father was a cowboy, my mother was a waitress. My main aim was, and had been since I was 18 years old, to translate the Bible for a group of people who didn't have the Bible. They call themselves the Hiaichehe, which means the straight ones. In our language is Apagaiso, a crooked head, a twisted head. I was going to represent God here. I had a responsibility to give God a tribe, to give a tribe Jesus, to win a tribe for Christ. The dilemma for the Christian missionary is that ultimately, for your message to work, you have to convince them that they're wrong. I, I, I just can't find any evidence for God. They define everything according to the way they're living at the moment. The word for ear is awe, and the word for skin is awe, and the word for foreigner is awe, and the word for hand is awe, and the word for Brazil nutshell is awe. They don't have any numbers. It seems that every time I change my mind, I do make people mad. Why on earth would it be racist to report the results of my research? This is shocking to me, and it often angers me considerably. You uh, see, well, the uh, professor Everett spent three very interesting years with um, well, this group of uh, Pidaha people in the 
jungle, and this led him to some very interesting investigations into the language that these people speak and uh, some controversial conclusions that challenged the utmost authority in the field, Noam Chomsky. And, uh, um, well, Professor Arvich is going to talk about this, but I just would like, before his talk, say that, uh, well, the language is absolutely fascinating. I find it fascinating, the structure of the language. And uh, because uh, everything is based on the present, and uh, the language has three marvelous suffixes uh, that uh, uh, are supposed to, or that I attach to every word, every verb that are supposed to define whether the ver well, this uh, uh, verb is derived from uh, personal experience, from the way that people, whether they have heard this information, they have seen this information, or deduced it from their personal experience. And I find this is absolutely fascinating structure, these suffixes. Uh, and um, well, from my personal experience, I would say that uh, uh, our students uh, in my classes and seminars, they talk a lot and they always have an opinion. But unfortunately, it's not always an informed opinion. <laughs> so I, I would be very happy if, uh, if we have these suffixes so that we can immediately attach them to their, uh, well, the, uh, their postulations so they knew, we knew where do they take these postulations from. So I think uh, there are some things that uh, we can kind of borrow from the language of Pedahai people. And, uh, but now, uh, all to Professor Everett, please welcome. Thanks very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I want to talk to you this evening a, a little bit about uh, language, culture, and being human. Very narrow subject, I suppose. Um, and start off with one of my favorite quotes from the French anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss. Instead of notions borrowed from books and immediately changed into philosophical concepts, I was confronted with the lived experience of native societies by the commitment of the observer. My mind escaped from the claustrophobic steam bath to which it had been confined by the practice of philosophical reflection. My philosopher friends don't like that. Uh, led to the open air, it felt refreshed by the new breath. Like a city dweller released in the mountains, I became intoxicated while my dazzled eyes examined the richness and variety of the scene. I don't think anyone's ever summarized the joy of field research uh, better than that. Um, and, and it's an important complement, not a replacement for philosophical reflection, but a complement to it. Um, the s video section that you saw was from a new documentary coming out uh, in May in the United States on the Smithsonian Channel and shortly thereafter in Australia and various other countries and hopefully the BBC called uh, The Grammar of Happiness, which is the final chapter also uh, in, in my new book, uh, Language the Cultural Tool. And um, this, was, this title was given to the Pitaha film by other, others who saw them and just, even though they had seen many other indigenous cultures around the world, were struck by the level of happiness and, and uh, uh, joy that they saw among the Pitahas, which is, is not uncommon among hunter-gatherers. It's not that I'm saying they're the only, anyone's saying they're the only people that are happy or they are the happiest people in the world, although that was the tr title of my German book, but I didn't give it that title. Uh, but we're saying that they're very, 
they have mastered something fundamental. And, and what are some of the things we want to f master to achieve a certain level of happiness? Uh, perhaps control over worry. Well, the Pitaha don't talk about the distant past, and they don't talk about the distant future. So by not talking about the distant future, a great deal of discussion that leads to worry and re reinforcement through discussion is missing. Since they don't talk much about the distant past, in fact, they don't talk at all about the distant past, they, it's, it's uh, difficult to have a concept of regret that works very well because regret involves dwelling on the past. Um, and they also have a, a fascinating uh, concept of name changing so that every time a Pitaha has a major experience in their life, their name changes and they become someone else. And they don't forget that they used to be this person, but they're not to blame for things that person did. Um, and that's a great way to overcome regret. Um, security, uh, hunters and gatherers around the world, as long as their environment hasn't changed dramatically, they're deeply secure in what they can do. They can feed themselves fairly easily. How long does it take for a hunter-gatherer to provide food for their family? Uh, about 15 to 20 hours a week of work. Every, and women and men have to work 15 to 20 hours a week. What do they do with the rest of their time? Anything they want. This contributes to happiness. Um, they, they are not uh, perfect people by any means. Nobody is, but they're, they're wonderful, happy people. And it's been my privilege to live with them for nearly eight years in the jungle over the last 30 years. And uh, you might ask, is there any way to calibrate happiness, to measure degrees of happiness? I asked this to the psychologist who was with me at the time. Who, who had said they were such a happy people. He said, well, I'd probably measure the time they spend smiling and laughing and compare that to the time other societies spend smiling and laughing. So the film, The Grammar of Happiness, um, has won the young, Jury of Young Europeans Prize at the International Festival of Audiovisual Programs, FIPA, in uh, France uh, this past January. And that was a very nice prize to win because it meant that young Europeans sponsored by the French government came from all over Europe to vote on their favorite film of the festival. And it's because of the Pitaha. It's a fabulous film about the Pitaha. So the mind. We know that human beings are somehow unique. We don't find other featherless bipeds walking around, talking to one another, sitting in lectures, talking about their grandparents, and doing all these sorts of things that humans do as a matter of course. So nobody would ever dispute that humans are distinct. Is that a distinction in kind? In other words, do we find traits in humans that we don't find in any other species? Or is it a difference of degree so that we find humans doing things more intently or better than other species do? That's part of the discussion that we're after. So you, all humans are capable of counting. The Pitaha are capable of counting. Pitaha children learn how to count when, uh, uh, when they're exposed to, to this in Portuguese. Uh, Pitaha children raised outside the village grow up speaking fluent Portuguese um, and, and counting just fine. But Pitaha in the language has no numbers and no concept of counting, and this has been corroborated by a variety of studies. Um, but what does that mean? It means that counting is not part of the universal human experience. And, and part of the story that we, we want to talk about tonight is what is that human experience? What is it that makes humans unusual from others? Is it a set of genetic programs that we have that others don't have? Or is it our great fluidity and flexibility? And, and that takes us down to the nature of human languages. What makes language what it is? Is it our grammar, our syntax, is it our storytelling? It's, here's an interesting fact. If I go to do field research, 
on a, on a tribe that, or a group that I've never worked with before, I will not walk in and say, who does the best noun phrases around here? It doesn't make much sense. It, because for one thing, not only will they not know what noun phrases are, because that's a peculiar fact of our culture, but they all do them probably this, at the same level of ability. But I will ask, who tells the best stories around here? And every culture I've ever worked with has a concept of a good storyteller and the ability to tell stories well, and that's the person I, I like to work with whenever possible. Uh, storytelling is, is very important. So cognition without numbers. Uh, Peter Gordon was the first one to confirm this after I made the claim. He's a psychologist at Columbia University. Then later in 2008, it was uh, corroborated by Michael Frank from Stanford, Evelina Federenko, and Ted Gibson from MIT in a paper with me. And recently, I received a, a new article in the Journal of Cognitive Science in the mail from Caleb Everett, who just happens to be my son, and who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Miami. He says, oh, by the way, I wrote this article, and I thought I'd send it to you. I didn't know he was writing it at all, and he wrote it with his mother. Uh, so um, they, they have also confirmed this, which uh, people may think his mother would be predisposed to confirm what I said, but in fact, not so. Um, <laughs> Um, so language, its nature, origin, and use. There are two principal alternatives to the nature of human language and where it comes from. One, which is very well known, uh, that goes all the way back to Plato, is called universal grammar. And that is the theory that has been proposed by Noam Chomsky and popularized by Steve Pinker and, and many others. The other is less pithy. It is that language is a complex interplay of biology, culture, information, science, and yet there's nothing in humans that's specific to language. There are just things that are specific to humans that make us uh, different. So what are some of the things that we can say about universal grammar? What do we know about humans that's specifically genetic to humans dedicated to language? The answer is nothing. We've never found any such thing. Um, so you could say, well, of course, there must be universal grammar because rocks can't learn to speak, kittens can't learn to speak, plants don't learn to speak, chimps don't learn to speak, uh, but they do learn a, a certain amount. Um, only this, if there's nothing specific to human language that we know of, then the claim that there must be something genetic that underlies human language becomes a tautology. Only humans have language because only humans have language. Um, that, that may not be the case, we'll investigate that. We'll talk about it. And you'll all agree. Maybe not. Uh, the, the other approach is the non-universal grammar approach, which is based on a number of other factors, um, general properties of the mind. But before we get into this discussion and trying to understand, because again, we're trying to understand what makes us human. And language is certainly, uh, my dog is very, very intelligent. I have a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and he taps me with his paw when he wants me to move over on the couch. He points with his nose when he wants me to give him a treat. If I say walk before we go for a walk, he's very excited and jumping up and down. If I say walk after we come back, he looks at me like, what are you talking about? Um, he, he's a pretty intelligent dog, but he's never told me a story about his grandmother. And he's never... Um, He's never really communicated to me the contents of his minds other than what I can read from his emotions. Language is a form of mental telepathy. We, we think that's science fiction, but in fact, language is mental telepathy. It's getting the contents of one mind to another mind. That's the only way we have to do it, is through human language in some way. Um, 
we can communicate some things without language. You know, so if I scream, that communicates something. A dog's bark communicates something else. But language is, is the only way we can talk about our grandparents. It's the only way we can get into heavy, deep discussions about what's dear to our hearts. It's what makes us human. No animal will ever tell these stories of any kind, as a matter of fact. Forget the grandparents. Along with culture, language is what gives life meaning. So universal grammar, which is the most popular theory uh, around today, uh, has several different components. First, all languages share the same grammar. So French, Arabic, English, Pidaha, all languages have basically the same grammar. In fact, not basically. They have the same grammar, but it's changed uh, by the words that we have. So we, we fill in the words. There are a few what are called parameters, which just are slight alterations in gram grammatical properties that we can acquire. But basically, languages have the same grammar. They differ mainly by the vocabulary. Languages, if they're are the outgrowth of a genetic program. That means languages are grown. They're not really learned, right? So you just learn the words, but you don't learn the grammar. The grammar just grows. That's what's there. Culture has no significant input into the computational system, which is grammar, or of, of any language. In fact, people have gone so far as to claim there's a language organ. A little difficult to find, but uh, there, the people have claimed that there is. So the number of names associated with this it is the majority view, but it is not the only view. Now, I want to go into a little bit about the Pitahas, whom I've lived and worked with for so long, because it was through my encounter with them that I began to think about different properties of language, different possibilities, and how language might not be the way that I had expected it to be. The Pitaha don't call themselves the Pitaha. They call themselves Hiaichehe, which means the straight ones, as you saw in the film. And that is as ethnocentric as it sounds. Um, they think that their language is better and prettier, and they think that um, they live in a better place, and that they're, you know, it's, they, they don't say that they're superior to us, but, you know, everybody would be a Pitaha if they could. Um, the Pitaha live in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. If you took out all the country boundaries of Brazil uh, and all the surrounding countries, they would be right in the middle. In Brazil, they're in the northwest section of the Amazon. The Amazon has been reduced by 20% in the last 40 years, but it's still bigger than the continental United States. Uh, there's a book, and there's a book, and um, the social instinct. Are there instincts? Do humans have instincts? Of course we do. One of them, the one that I, I find the most important for the story we want to tell tonight, was first recognized presumably by Aristotle. Um, a social instinct is implanted in all men by nature. What does that mean? It means that we need to communicate and have a sense of community to live and survive as a species. Even the Bible recognizes this. And the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. That sentence was completed in a different way that had to do with the creation of women, but it still got the social aspect um, down. And so where did this social aspect of humans come about that distinguishes us from so many other species around the world? Well, we know that humans dominated and became capable of controlling fire roughly uh, 1.6 million years ago in modern-day Kenya, Kobe Fora. Um, and what does fire do? If you can control fire, you sit around the fire, right, when it's cold and when you want to keep away wild animals. It starts to develop community. I think that's one of the reasons that the uh, Greek gods were so afraid of humans dominating fire, because we would 
challenge them. It's the sense of community. It's exactly the same reasons that led the Hebrew God to say he didn't want all humans speaking the same language. Because that sense of community of all people working together seemed to threaten whatever deities they were, whether they were on Mount Olympus or in the heavens. But the sense of community and the sense of uh, togetherness is unique to human beings. There's no other species that will sit around a fire like this just to sit around a fire like this. Uh, the only you, you, you will go to a pinaha who's um, sitting with other pinaha at the fire and you say, what are you doing? Uh, contrary to expectations, we are just sitting here. Uh, that's that's a, pinaha, a word that means contrary to expectations. Um, they, they're just sitting there enjoying one another's company. Fire and this kind of community is found in many cultures around the world, uh, from uh, Brazil to other places. And um, we find it Today, the sense of community is amazing. So take a group of human beings, put them around a table like this, and uh, put, put a bunch of bananas in here in the middle. What's going to happen to those bananas? Well, we'll share them very kindly with one another. And if anybody wants a banana, we'll give them a banana. We might even not take one ourselves because there weren't enough bananas to go around, because we have a sense of community. Now replace all those humans with chimpanzees and put a bunch of bananas in the middle. And what are you going to get? A bloodbath. <laughs> Other species just don't work like this. They're not like us in the sense that we can actually be out to cooperate and not compete. We're out to work together. That's something that we really have to understand and do a lot of comparative study. But so far, humans are the ones that show that they are the cooperative species. They work together in ways that no other creature does. But to work together, you've got a problem. You've got to be able to communicate. So what is involved in communication? If language is a tool, what problem does it solve? Communication uh, was outlined by the uh, engineer Claude um, uh, Shannon in the 1940s. And it's, it's fairly simple to see the chart. The mathematics was complicated, to say the least. Um, so you start off with an information source. Maybe that's my brain. And then um, you want to give a message. So I want to take what the information that's in my brain, let's say, and I want to put it at the destination, which I hope will be your brain. And I have a message. The way I've chosen to give my message tonight is with consonants and vowels, stress patterns. I could have done it by gestures. Fewer would have understood it, um, besides the fact that I don't know a, a sign language. I'd just be making them up anyway. Um, and I could have done it by writing and holding up posters like Bob Dylan and Subterranean Homes, whatever that song was. And then uh, I could have. Um, done it with smoke signals, which is hard up here. There are any number of ways to communicate. Speech happens to be the most efficient way we have discovered to communicate. So that's probably going to be the, the transmitter I use is the human vocal apparatus. That signal has to go across the airwaves. It's got to reach your ears. The ears have to translate that into uh, uh, electricity in some way, electronic impulses to the brain. And, and then uh, you will understand what I'm saying, maybe. If we share the same culture, and I'm speaking the same language, and I'm using words that most of us know, and I'm not inventing, you know, I mean, I could in invent every third word could be a word that only I use. That would not be really good for communication. So we need to be sure that we use the words that each other uses. Otherwise, communication doesn't work. So humans are really good at coming up with tools to solve problems. What is it? One of the most common tools is the bow and arrow. What does the bow and arrow do? I think it's found in just about every culture. It solves the problem of killing protein that moves faster than we do. Okay, so we need to eat protein 
You run after it, you're just going to get tired, you'll exert more calories than you will recover. Get a bow and arrow, shoot it, you can eat it, very few calories expended, and, and therefore you profit from that. Um, we don't need a gene to explain that. There's no bow and arrow gene, at least none that I know of. That just is a common solution to a common problem. And humans are very good at that. So what would it take to create a language tool if we wanted to do that? Well, we'd have to have several things, and it turns out we do have those things. Uh, intentionality, theory of mind, figure versus ground, contingency, background knowledge, consciousness, cultures, and signs. What is intentionality? Intentionality is the ability to focus our attention on something. To all of us, I can say, look there, and all of us can look there. We can focus our attention on something. We're not the only creatures that can do that, but it turns out that we're the only creatures that do point to draw attention uh, to others. So, so uh, I'm, and actually, my dog can do that a little bit. I mean, so like if somebody sits in his seat on the couch, he will come up and, and paw me and look over there, and I ask them to leave, and he gets up there. And so that is actually pointing. So animals are capable of it to a very limited degree, but most animals can't do that. But it's important. It was first studied by Jeremy Bentham, who was one of the founders of University College London. Then we need a theory of mind. This is probably the greatest discovery. It's the thing that distinguishes humans, among other things, from all other creatures. I know that you have a mind like mine. You know that I have a mind like yours. And because we know this, we, we think it's possible to communicate. It underlies communication. What are some of the experiments that would show that children have a theory of mind? After about three years of age, chimps and children, up to three years of age, chimps and children perform relatively well, uh, comparatively speaking, on language tasks. It's at the age of a few months and then especially at three that the children kick in with a theory of mind that the chimps never show any evidence for. So do a little experiment like this with a small child. This is Sally. Um, this is Anne. Sally has a ball. She puts it into her basket. Sally goes out for a walk. Anne takes the ball out of the basket and then puts the, basket, the ball in the box. Now Sally comes back. She wants to play with the ball. Where will Sally look for the ball? Children don't say she will look in the box. Why don't they say she'll look in the box? Because they know Sally has a brain and that Sally has beliefs and so they'll say Sally will look in the basket because that's where she thinks it is. And that's not something any other creature can do, is to think that some other creature of the same species has a mind alike. Another thing we have to be able to do is distinguish figure versus ground, the focused element from the stuff that's not so important. We do this in vision, we do it in speech, and when it's difficult to do that, we get optical illusions, oral illusions, that sort of thing. So is this a goblet or is it two funny-shaped heads looking at each other? And this, this turns out to be difficult initially for a lot of people to see because they've got to be able to pick out the figure. So if the figure is the goblet, you see the black is just background. If the figure is the black, then the goblet is just background. And that's very important to having language. It's also important to survival so other creatures can clearly do that. If I'm walking with the pitaha in the jungle, I have the ability to see this monkey distinguished from the forest. The forest is the background, the monkey is the figure. But it takes a while to figure that out. So many times when I'm walking with the pitaha, I'll feel someone pull me from behind. What's the matter? You're about to step on that alligator. <laughs> and I literally have been walking in the jungle at night with an alligator right there by the path, and I was, about, I was gonna step on it didn't see it, you would think you'd see that pretty well, but it was at night. So how do you see an alligator at night? Two red glows. 
Uh, here's, here's a really good story from another tribe I work with, the Banawa fellow. Uh, we went down to the river at night and we saw uh, two red eyes swimming towards us. So we knew that was an alligator, a small alligator, actually a small caiman. And then we saw two yellow eyes swimming after the alligator. What was that? It was an anaconda. The alligator is its favorite food, so it was going to eat it. Uh, but you've got to be able to recognize the stories of colors and eyes and all of this stuff. I remember them pulling me aside and saying, that's a snake. Where? Right there under the leaves. Where? I don't see it. Right there. I don't see it. <laughs> Pulled it up. There it is. Okay, now I see it. <laughs> Contingency is something else that's fundamental to language, knowing what's going to come next. We've got to be able to anticipate something about what our interlocutor is likely to say to us. We, know, have, we have to know who, what, when, where are these things are coming. So let me give you a couple of examples that were made famous by Chomsky many years ago. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. This is an old and famous example. When it was first uttered, it was said that this was formed by a grammar with no meaning. But it's been around so long now, and there have been so many poems and stories written about this sentence that, for a lot of people, perfectly meaningful. Which is it. Don't, don't forget that fact. That turns out to be important. Furiously colorless sleep ideas green is bad all around. It doesn't have a good form and it has no meaning we can associate with it. Why is that? Well, one possible explanation is that furiously colorless, etc., doesn't follow from the grammar. But the other possibility is that these um, violate our contingency judgments. In fact, computer scientists have shown that the first sentence, even though it doesn't mean anything, is 200,000 times more likely to occur than the second sentence. There's a great deal more statistical support for the first sentence because it seems more like the kinds of things we say. There's also the fact, very simple fact, that words that have shared meaning tend to occur closer together in sentences. So colorless and green, colorless is an adjective, green is an adjective. You don't expect to find uh, green on the other side of the sentence where there's nothing for it to modify. So these, a number of contingency facts. We also need to know background. So what is the background? It's something about culture that uh, we all know as members of a culture, members of a species. It's something that, um, you know, so if people tell stories, so talk about a stop sign. It's just a red octagon with the stop in the middle. Now let's say I see a stop sign a thousand feet in the distance. Should I stop immediately? No. I, maybe I go another 250 feet and stop? No, there's an infinite number of stopping points possible, but part of the background knowledge is I stop right before I get to it, just, be, just in front of it. And then I look both ways, and then I go across. That cultural information doesn't have to be listed on the stop sign. It would be, make really small letters anyway. Uh, you, you know, you could have a series of pre-stop signs. Not yet, not yet, not yet, now. <laughs> but we don't need to do that because that's shared knowledge that we all have. So several years ago, computer scientists at Yale University wanted to show that computers could master human reasoning. So they designed a series of scripts. This was led by Roger Shank and his colleagues. And they, they had a script, for example, a man walks into a restaurant. They tell the computer this. He orders a hamburger. The hamburger comes. It's burnt. The man is angry. He gets up, and he storms out of the restaurant. Now ask the computer, did he pay for the hamburger? And the computer says, why no? So the, the computer reasons like a person, correct? Actually not. John Searle, the philosopher from the University of California, Berkeley, said, can I ask the computer a few questions? Sure. Did the man put the hamburger in his ear? I don't know. Did he wear it as a hat? I don't know. Did he wrap it in cellophane and play tennis with it? I don't know. 
The computer doesn't know all of this because it hasn't been programmed in. It hasn't been made explicit. Searle's point was that you can never program all this knowledge in. Humans acquire this knowledge as members of cultures and societies, and it, they, they make a number of associations so that not all of it is taught explicitly, but it's too complicated to program in, and it's part of language. When we tell stories, part of what we leave out is what we all know to be the same. That's why I call it to be the dark cognitive matter of stories or discourse. We also need consciousness. We don't know really that well yet what causes consciousness. Some people say consciousness isn't possible without language. But in fact, uh, consciousness uh, does occur without language. We know that animals can be conscious. At least I think animals can be conscious. I also think that uh, when I listen to stories of Helen Keller, the face, famous deaf, mute, uh, blind person from the United States, who talks about her consciousness prior to acquiring language, that's a pretty good refutation of the idea that you need language for consciousness. In fact, I think you need consciousness for language. If you're unconscious, it's hard to talk. You need culture. And this is where we have to, we have to spend a little time. What is culture? We know when we see different cultures that they're not the same as ours. So culture has two main forces, and I will talk about something else that I think is at least as important as these two main forces, imitation and innovation. Imitation, why do we have these two forces? Let's say that there's a group of people moving together and there are problems in the environment, but they don't vary that frequently. Say, you know, the problems remain more or less constant if you stay in the same environment. So is it more efficient for you to learn how to solve all those problems on your own or to imitate other people who are imitating other people who already know how to solve those problems? Most of the time, it's easier just to imitate. And that's what most of us do all the time. In language and in the way we live and the way we dress, we just imitate other people. Uh, a little bit of innovation here and there, but if we innovate too much, we'll be seen as weird. Now, if the, if, or eccentric, however you want to put it, but if, if the environment changes and now, the cultural solutions that we've proposed from our, that our ancestors have given us don't work, we'll either all die or someone has to innovate something that is a solution that we can go back to imitating. The fast, so it seems that human cognitive development took off in a major way during the Pleistocene era when the climate was changing so radically and problems had to be solved. Humans responded to that very well. So imitation is a great solution for a lot of problems. Uh, as long as the environment stays the same. But sometimes we need to innovate. Um, anybody know who this is? This is Sarah Blakely, the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. And she's showing the product that she invented uh, to, um, to get rich, right? So not a pro I, this, is, this is a solution to a problem. It's not a problem I had. Um, I didn't need pantyhose without feet in them. But apparently this was very popular uh, in the States, popular enough for her to make over a billion dollars. Uh, and this is innovation. She didn't just imitate everybody. So even little solutions to problems that aren't big problems can, can be beneficial to the, to the person. But most inventors don't have that kind of luck. There are other forces. And I want to talk primarily about values right now. So what are values? Values are things that, that we believe are important. And it's not just enough to say what values people hold, but it's important to say in what priority they hold those values. I often hear the expression that everybody's basically the same, we have all the same values. Well, we do share a lot of values with people wherever they're at in the world. But not only do we have some different values, but we, have, we rank our values in different ways. So let's say that you have two societies and they have the values good food, 
hard work being fit. I bet everybody in here would say they're a fan of good food, they're a fan of hard work, maybe, and a fan of being fit, okay? Now let's say that the most important value to you is good food. And the next is hard work, because you've got to pay for the good food. And then finally, you know, if you get a chance, being fit, right? Somebody else says, no, my values are being fit is most important, then hard work, and then good food. So uh, the, the blues singer Howling Wolf um, talked about this in, in a great song, I, ain't, I am built for comfort, I ain't built for speed. And so uh, number one would be, I am built for comfort, and number two would be, I am built for speed. You get different people who hold the same values but look very differently according to the way that they, they structure those values. So what makes a culture? It's the people we imitate. It is the people who share with us the most values ranked in the, in the most similar fashion. The more people we find like that, the, the closer we are in culture to them. And as we do this, we, we form groups very naturally. This is the force that creates tribalism and it produces divergence in age that, that is further reinforced by age, income, geography, and history. Uh, tribalism is a very important force in the world uh, and one part of tribalism is very important, that is the mastery of local knowledge and imitation of people who know solutions to local problems. That's very important for the diversity of the species and the survival of the species. Another kind of tribalism is the tribalism of the world, national, nation imitating nation. Um, that has its advantages, but it also has its severe disadvantages because with that can come the loss of local knowledge. Um, finally, we come to signs. Signs are the bits of meaning. This is the fundamental difference between humans and all other creatures in uh, communication. We are able to systematically agree as a society. Uh, Aristotle talked about this as, as our conventions on what a particular word means, what a particular sign means, what its form should always be. And we create these, and these give us uh, uh, language up to a point. Uh, so what are some signs? A noun, John, J-O-H-N, that's the form. And the meaning is the person that refers to. Verbs, run, R-U-N, and the meaning is that action of running. Um, parts of words such as S-I-N-G-S, that means third person singular subject, that's just agreed on by everyone. Um, we have constructions which shows that signs are not just words. How many, you probably wouldn't say this, but it's, it's popular on bumper stickers in the U.S., the hurrieder I go, the behinder I get, uh, which Although we all know those words are not grammatical, hurrieder and behinder, and nobody usually says that, I've never heard anybody say those outside of this construction, we all immediately know what they mean because it's a sign that's based on other signs like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Um, so we, ha we, we get a sign that's like a sentence sign and we can tweak it in little ways and build other sentences. And, and there are uh, a number of people, so, so we, we imitate one another's signs we can innovate them. If we innovate slightly, other people can follow us. If we innovate too much, they can't. So if you're a scientist like Murray Gell Mann and you find a, a particular kind of particle that's not like any other particle and you want to give a name to it, maybe you need to invent a new word. Or you could just borrow one from James Joyce called quark and call these things quarks. Um, but that's innovation. How do you learn what the word means? You have to, you have to learn what the concept is. So some innovation is important. So we ask those are the cognitive platforms for language. We need all of those things that we've just talked about to have language. 
And fortunately, we do. And we're the only species that has all of them. Then we need physical platforms for language. Uh, it doesn't do any good to have a brain if it doesn't have any physical way to manifest itself. Um, so we need genes. Some people have claimed that the FOXP2 gene is the language gene, but actually that's not the case. FOXP2 is found in other species, and it has a range of functions in humans, which include the controlling of sequential muscles and, and sequential activities, which uh, language certainly is one of those. The brain, we, we all have uh, parts of our brain called the basal ganglia that control repetitive sequential actions. They're involved in bicycle riding and putting sentences together. Um, and we have areas that have been talked about, but which I'm not really sure exist, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, supposed to be specialized regions of the brain for language. One thing we do have that everyone agrees on that is unique to humans, dedicated specifically to talking, is our vocal apparatus. Chimps are different from humans in that their trachea and esophagus are higher up, their tongue is farther up in the mouth, so when they make sounds, they can make sure their trachea and is not connected to their esophagus, so they can eat and not worry about food going down the trachea. Humans have evolved in such a way that the, the tongue goes back farther into the mouth. When it does that, it changes, it elongates the vocal apparatus, it changes the relationship of the trachea and the esophagus. It produces one wonderful result. We can produce what no other species can produce, the vowels, e, a, u. Those are found in all languages of the world. They're the most important vowels. They're the easiest to hear apart. If you got those vowels, you can, you can think about having a, a good uh, speech system. But the, the, tr the trouble with those vowels is to get them and put the tongue back farther in the mouth, we can choke to death if we talk with our mouth full. So that's a little trade-off. But we thought that it was important enough to have E, A, U, evolutionary theory, evolutionary forces did, that it was willing to choke a few humans to death to get that. The basal ganglia system is, is just the system, this is about as complicated as my knowledge of the brain is. I just know that there's some gray stuff here. The, the basal ganglia are, are connected throughout the cere cerebral cortex and they govern a lot of actions. There's really nothing, and I'll, at least I'll tell you that, and you can check it out for yourself, there's really nothing in the cerebral cortex that seems to be dedicated to language. And there's nothing anywhere in the brain that seems to be dedicated to language, but the basal ganglia are fundamentally implicated in speech because speech is a sequential habitual activity, and that's what they do. Some people have argued that uh, over years that there's an area called Broca's area and Wernicke's area, and these are dedicated to language. D several difficulties with this idea. First, take a little child, take those parts out of their brain, and what will happen? Not much. They, they develop language. Uh, take them out of an adult, and they lose language, perhaps, certain parts of language, but they also lose other things. Both of these regions, which are extremely difficult to define spatially, um, have a range of functions. They're not just language areas. The other fact is that anything I know is in my brain. You know, so I know how to make authentic Mexican burritos. That's in my brain somewhere. I know how to tie my shoes. That's in my brain somewhere. And it tends to be stored in certain areas because certain kinds of knowledge are similar. And they require similar skills, so they, attend, they tend to be stored in a similar part of the brain. That doesn't mean that tying shoes is innate. It doesn't mean that making burritos is innate. It just means that uh, they have to be stored somewhere in my brain. The human vocal apparatus, as we said, it's, it's dedicated. So if you look at the parts of the human vocal apparatus, the nose, the upper teeth, 
uh, all of these things, none of them are specific to language. We'd have all those anyway. Um, what is different is the shape, the tongue being farther back in the mouth. The rest of it is just exploiting what we have to make sounds. You can think of human speech as, you, you know, irritating thing I used to do as a child was take balloons and let the air out really slowly and make squeaky sounds and adults didn't tend to like that. That's basically how we talk. We let the air out of this balloon, our lungs, and we control the squeaky sounds with our mouth, tongue, teeth, and, and we get language out of that. Not really profound, but that's specific to humans. Well, you could ask, could there be language without this vocal apparatus? It seems that speech follows language, um, if anything, um, because there are languages that are possible without speech. So let me give you an example from Peter Ha. This is whistle speech that d doesn't have consonants and vowels, and, and you can watch this for a little bit. <laughs> so he thought he was being filmed making, a bow, uh, making an arrow, so he didn't want this other guy bothering him. So the other guy's whistling to him, saying, whistle, show them whistle speech, and he's just ignoring him. And then he says, show them whistle speech, and he little pejorative thing, and there's something humorous, and he starts laughing and talks to him. He says, let's whistle. So he whistles to him, I'm making an arrow, I'm going to hunt. Uh, that's one way to do it. Another way is hum speech. So whistle speech is used for men when they hunt. Several languages in the world have whistle speech. So could Neanderthalensis have whistled instead of using consonants and vowels? Because we know they didn't make the same vowels we do. Um, yeah, they could have whistled. They could have communicated in other ways. In all the societies that I know of in the world that have whistle speech, and there are quite a few, only two do women whistle. In almost all of them, whistling is exclusively for men. And in English and American society, if one sex wants to communicate to the other by whistling, which sex will it be? <laughs> um, hum speech is used by anybody, but it's particularly used by mothers with children. And children often learn their language first through hum speech in Pitaha. So where does language come from? Um, one of the most, we, so we have signs, these things that are form and meaning. Now we don't have a vocal apparatus that can utter three words at once. We have to have words come one after another. So that's the beginnings of what is called syntax. We gotta order these signs in some way. And there are a couple of very simple principles. And the, most, the simplest one is we have slots, positions, and we have fillers, things that can go in those positions. So the subject slot is filled by a noun. The verbs, the predicate slot is filled by a verb. And these are fairly simple uh, aspects of syntax. And syntactic structure, is, which is grammar basically, is to string words together with those closer in meaning being closer to each other. Um, and it involves recursion. Recursion is the is the ability to put one thing inside another of the same type. And I'll give you examples of that. It involves uh, several other things. I got interested in linguistics 
because of these diagrams. These are called Reed-Kellogg diagrams. I haven't found anybody over here who did them. They've certainly not done anymore in the U.S. It's probably more a sign of my age than anything else. But when I was in eighth grade, we had, this, we had the diagram sentences like this. This is why I'm a linguist. I thought this was just great. This is one thing I could do that I actually liked in school. And they show the, the basic meaning relationships among words and parts of words and phrases. Chomsky, Hauser, and Fitch argued that there's one more bit besides this. There's something really important, and it's called recursion. That apparently no other animal can do in the world. And that's the ability to apply a process to itself. So if I make a noun phrase, make another noun phrase inside that noun phrase, make another noun phrase inside that noun phrase, keep going. John said that Bill said that Mary heard that Peter thought that Jim believed that the house that Jack built was under a tree on top of the father's brother's sister's aunt's friend's neighbor's hill. Okay, you probably wouldn't utter that, but you could if you wanted to. Okay, and you didn't have any problem accepting it as English, even if you don't really know yet what it means. Uh, you have to think about it. Okay, these things occur in written language more than they do in spoken language, but they're very important. And the claim was that all human languages had to have this. Um, Pitaha is one of two languages that are are known, uh, believed not to have recursion. Uh, and I made this claim first in, in a paper in 2005, and uh, you would have thought I had uh, you know, done something really evil. But uh, in recent years, this has uh, been corroborated by, an experiment, by, by, a number of, by a bunch of work at uh, Tufts University by a couple of linguists there. And they claim that not only does Pita Ha lack recursion, but uh, one language called Riau of Indonesia also lacks recursion. And at MIT's Department of Brain Cognitive Sciences, there are other experiments going on that show that recursion is missing in most of the places we would expect to find it. They're ongoing. So what does that mean? It means that there is no one structural principle that, is un that unifies all human languages. It also means, with all these other things we've seen, that there's not much left for a language instinct or a universal grammar to do. A language instinct, by the way, is sort of oxymoronic because an instinct is something that cannot be learned. If you can learn it, it's not an instinct. If you learn language, language is not an instinct. It may be driven by an instinct, which I call the social instinct, but there isn't evidence for a language instinct per se. Um, that means that, as we said at the start, what makes humans human, what makes us who we are, is not the fact that we're hardwired to unfold like a shoot of corn, which has double the genes that we do, you know, uh, 23,000 genes for humans and over 40,000 genes for corn. Why does corn need more genes? Because it's stupid. It can't learn very well. Human genes have enabled us to have the kind of brain that's flexible, that takes us through various environments, and, and it means that uh, all humans can learn a language. Here's an interesting prediction of universal grammar that is often overlooked. It predicts that not all humans should be able to learn all languages. How does it do that? Because if language is carried in the genes, we know that genetic mutations take place all the time, and we know that culture is one of the forces that selects among those genetic mutations for which will survive and which won't. So take lactose tolerance, the ability to uh, digest milk products after infancy. Very few peoples in the world have lactose tolerance. We happen to be some, uh, and it turns out, big surprise, the peoples who have this produce cattle. 
So we find lactose tolerance in Africa, we find lactose tolerance in Europe, but there are a lot of places we don't find it. You don't find it in the Amazon. Try to serve a slice of cheese to an Amazonian Indian and they may vomit. They don't have the ability to digest that. Uh, they can keep it down, but it's not something that they like. And it's common among many Asian peoples. It's, it's a gene uh, variation that, that is about 7,500 years old, very recent, favored by cultures. Another example, less uh, roughly 3,000 years old, is the ability of certain people in Tibet to produce oxygen more efficiently at higher altitudes than other people. And, and uh, they made a cultural decision to live at higher altitudes. The genes followed, and we know that's the case. Now, your Indo-European languages, English and French and Spanish, we were all the same language 6,000 years ago. It was called Indo-European. And over those 6,000 years, we've become the separate languages that we've become. But remember, we carry all these similarities because we used to be the same language. That's one reason that these languages are so similar. And um, so in, the, in these 6,000 years, English has developed a characteristic that's very old that means we always have to have a subject in the sentence. So we can't say in English just something like rains rains today. We have to say it rains, even though it doesn't mean anything, right? What rains? Uh, we just have to say it because we have to have a subject. Now in Spanish and Portuguese and many other Romance languages, you don't need a subject. You can just say rain. So in Portuguese you say chove. And it would be, you couldn't even say ele chove unless you meant something weird about a man that was raining or something like that. Uh, so, so in those 6,000 years, which is plenty of time within the scope of genetic alteration, um, it would be quite possible to imagine that cultures would put pressure so you didn't have to learn that distinction. It would just be favored by the genes so that maybe you couldn't learn a language that had to have subjects, or you couldn't learn a language that didn't have to have subjects. This is, idea has been developed in a couple of books by the evolutionary uh, biologist and, and phonetician Philip Lieberman from Brown University. And, and uh, it's, it's an interesting prediction. If grammar is carried in the genes, it ought to be evidenced by the fact that not all humans can learn all languages. But if grammar is not in the genes, it's a function of general human intelligence and problem solving, then all humans ought to be able to learn all languages. Um, so we can ask ourselves, is there anything left that we need universal grammar to do? I, I, I've given this talk at some academic audiences that are relatively hostile to the idea, and I say I've not proved that universal grammar is false. I've just said it's not really necessary. I don't know what work it does based on what we have to explain. If I am correct that human language is the result of culture and grammar working together, and that doing this shares local knowledge stores local knowledge and teaches us things about one language not being exactly like another language, then it's very important that we study endangered languages to learn more about the nature of human beings. There are 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. 98% of those languages are spoken by roughly 2% of the people of the world. Each one of those languages is a tool that has been created to solve local problems, that is full of all kinds of information about the local environment with literature and, and traditions that could teach us all a great deal about what it means to live life in this world. As they disappear without being studied, we lose, lang we lose knowledge that we'll never be able to Google. We'll never find this knowledge again. It will be lost forever. That's why it's important to study this and value all peoples of the world and value diversity and realize we often learn the most 
from the people who are least like us. If we just talk to the same people all the time, we're like a friend of mine, a philosopher, who says he doesn't read anymore. If they agree with me, I already knew that. If they disagree, they're wrong. We don't want to be those kind of people, and we really want to learn from everyone else. We need to experience diversity, appreciate diversity, and learn from others who are unlike ourselves. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Professor Everett. That was fascinating. And I think we'll proceed in the following way. We'll have questions from the audience. And uh, uh, then uh, Professor Everett kindly agreed to sign the books uh, after uh, the talk. So if uh, everybody is welcome, interested in this. But uh, uh, now, if uh, please, questions. Yes, please. is cooperation and practice. <laughs> right. um, what I'm wondering about is uh, you have this dichotomy between the universal grammar and this sort of cultural model. Um, are these really um, uh, ap separate hypotheses or is this a continuum? Because you could imagine that we're all born with the capacity to speak and that's genetic. Um, and so the question it seems to be one of where do you draw the line rather than are we on this side or are we on that side? That's a very good question. Certainly we are all involved, we're all born with the capacity to speak. If that's all you mean by universal grammar, no one would disagree. Because I believe that we can all speak. Uh, but if you believe that there's something specific in the brain that triggers a grammar that's the same for all people, which is the universal grammar hypothesis, then that I see very little evidence for. So is, are all people capable of learning to speak because they all have a similar brain? Or are all people capable of learning to speak because they have very specific genetic programs in parts of their brain? And it may be a subtle point, but it tells us something about the nature of human beings. And I think it has to do with whether we're designed to be flexible or inflexible. Thank you. Any more questions? Oh, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Hello. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Can I just ask you, um, what is your take on the idea of a single origin for language, is that basically the origin of universal grammar, with, or, or, or is it something different? Do you think it's poly, um, a poly-origin or, or, or single origin? I think it's quite plausible that all human uh, languages originated with, uh, in Africa over 150,000 years ago. That would do a lot to explain similarities among the languages of the world today. It wouldn't explain all the similarities, and it doesn't have to. There are a number of other things that would explain the rest of the similarities. So I don't have any proof that that happened, uh, but it, it seems likely that the first bands that cooperated and had community, that's what you had to have to leave Africa, could communicate, which probably means they all had language when they left, and, and probably since there were so few humans in the world at that time, it was the same language. Uh, just in response to what, you, what, what the slide said about how uh, the Paraha people didn't have, uh, don't have recursion in language, but they do have recursion in thought, uh, has any work been done in seeing uh, what their ability, if, if there is any 
unusual like, deficiency in their ability to reason about multiple orders of, um, of reasoning about other people's states of mind, like the, where's the ball? No, they, they can reason just fine, they, and we see evidence of recursive thinking in their discourse structure. They tell stories that have ideas within ideas, but uh, let me give you an example of orders of reasoning about other minds. So, for example, it has often been said by some psychologists that you have to have recursion to figure out how to reason about other people's minds. So you say, for example, John has gray hair. That would be false if John doesn't have gray hair. It would be true if he does. Bill said that John has gray hair. That's false, not if John has gray hair or not, but only if Bill said it or not. Um, and so people have argued that to get other people's perspective, you've got to have recursion. But in fact, even in English, that's not true. So we can say, John has gray hair, or so Bill says. Uh, so there's no recursion there, and yet you can get the same level of reasoning, and that's the way the Pinaha do it. Although it does seem to be harder at a certain level. So if I say Peter said that Bill said that John said that uh, Irving said that Bill has gray hair, uh, that's harder to say in a language without recursion, but I don't think many of you would say that anyway. I, I would never say it. Okay. Can we have a question here? Mm -hmm. Hi there. Uh, thanks for a great lecture. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, I know there's this, kind of this, this discourse regarding universal uh, grammar or universal language, um, but I think, uh, I think the actual question that I'd want to know is, what generates language within a human being? So if, if you didn't teach a human being any words or any language, um, could they spontaneously generate language? And I, I know there's been some case studies around, around the world where like, children grew up, grew up in the wild and they didn't generate language. So what do you think uh, generates language? Well, I think that, uh, as I say, language is a tool for solving the communication problem. An individual by themselves really has no one to communicate with, so language doesn't develop very well. Two individuals together would be able to develop some language, and we have a lot of evidence of this, uh, not a lot of evidence of just two people that have been found, but we do find that languages, uh, there are a number of uh, characteristics that I t discuss in the book. Culture is certainly not the only thing. There are a lot of things that shape the kinds of languages we can have that are independent uh, factors. Uh, but uh, it's the social instinct, it's the need to communicate that causes us to try to solve that problem. And it turns out there's only a certain amount of solutions to that problem for people, for creatures that are like us. Um, in, a, in a fairly global world now, is there any evidence or any study um, to show that a baby from any part of the world can grow up in any other part of the world and learn the language with apparently no problems. So that there's no sort of cultural bias in, in learning that particular language. The only way to really do that experiment is to get people from the 7,000 languages of the world to exchange children. <laughs> and so it's difficult to do that experiment for a number of reasons. But I have seen children, as we all have, from very different cultures raised in other cultures and they speak the language just fine, they master the culture just fine. Uh, a, a good friend of mine who, who just retired from University College London, a phonologist who was born and raised in England, not Chinese descent, married a Chinese man who didn't speak Chinese uh, because he was born and raised in the US. So when they would go to Hong Kong, she happened to be fluent in Chinese. So they'd be in Hong Kong and everyone would come up to talk to her husband and find out that they couldn't talk to him. They had to talk to her, which was a weird experience. But it just illustrates the fact that so far we've never found a case of a group that couldn't, whose babies couldn't learn any other language. Tony? 
Thank you. Very interesting speech. Um, a few weeks ago, at another LSC event, uh, another professor from America <coughs> mentioned that there are these 7,000, 8,000 languages in the world, many of them in Indonesia, or sorry, Papua New Guinea. Yes. And the point he made was actually very interesting, was that um, it seems that uh, a lot of these languages uh, are very localized to a very small spot. So you just go down a mile or two miles or three miles down a beach or whatever it is. Different language. Um, how does this, or if you thought about this issue, how does this jive with the social instinct and the economy of communication that comes from having a language be used over a much wider area as opposed to a very tiny area where you can only communicate with a very few people? In fact, you can't even communicate with your neighbors down the beach or whatever. Right which seems to be the case in Papua New Guinea. There's a very great principle that explains all of this, and it is you talk like who you talk with. Uh, so the more you talk with a group of people, the more you'll talk uh, like them. So if you're talking to people your age and not talking to people much older, you're probably not going to talk like people that are much older than you. You'll talk more like people that are your age. If you're talking to people of a certain economic class and not people of another economic class, you're more likely to talk to them. In geography, it's the same way. So for example, in New Guinea, where there's a lot of mountains and rivers, it turns out that it's people talk like people they talk with. They talk with people on their side of the river. And after a certain amount of time, that talk becomes so different from the talk on the other side of the river that we have different languages. So that's how all languages, I mean, so a couple of thousand years ago, English used to be, uh, well, English started off as German, right? In the 12th century, uh, the author of the book uh, is sitting up here in the audience uh, called Empires of the Word. I highly recommend that book by my friend Nicholas Osler. But uh, the English almost went extinct. It was German. We lost uh, all the great things that we had as a German language. We uh, lost all our great verb inflection and this sort of thing. And we borrowed a lot of stuff from French. Why? Because we weren't in Germany anymore. We were talking among ourselves and we were subjugated by the French, which is, have you ever asked yourself why it's cow in the field and beef on the table? Because we raised it and the French ate it. Uh, and this is the way a lot of this works, these vestiges. It's who we talk with and what we do with these things. Um, so in a place with lots of geographical boundaries where there's no particular need to go across those boundaries, you're going to find different languages. So if you go through Europe, you see very similar things. You see mountain ranges on one side is Spanish, the other side is French. Uh, so, so there are a number of uh, things like this. Can we have please this? Professor, thank you very much for your lovely evening. I don't know if you write or you run, but if you run, you do it in a very stimulating way. Great. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, in, in the time you spent with the, with the Pira Hat, uh, what was your experience of how important what you could call knowledge economy was in, in their society? What, can you tell me a little bit more what you mean by that? What I mean by that is that materially, probably, they're not you know, like the West, right. uh, but as you were saying, because being hunter-gatherers, they had a lot more leisure time, right. and, and I, I gathered that they didn't just sit there, they, they were doing things. Uh, and Actually, they do tend to just sit there and talk. Right. <laughs> Eat potatoes out of the fire and yeah. talk about the fish that got away. That's the most common thing. So in talking about the, the fish that got away, did they... Did, did, did knowledge play an important role in the status that people had in their society? People 
have pretty much the same knowledge base. There are clearly people who are born more talented in hunting or fishing, but there's no social stratification among the Pitaha. And, and there's no Pitaha who can't do everything another Pitaha can do, they just may not do it as well. So if you're going on a hunting trip and you know this guy hunts better than you do, you'll probably invite him to come. You won't let him be the boss, but you'll probably follow behind him. He better not tell you what to do, but you'll do it anyway because you know he's a better hunter. Uh, so there, is, there are different skills, but in terms of people who specialize in knowledge, I've never seen any evidence for that in Pinaha. Um, sorry, just capitalizing on this question, is there any competition and rivalry between them? And if so, uh, is it reflected in the language? Are there any comparative adjectives, for instance? Uh, there are no comparative adjectives in the language. Uh, so I worked on this for a long time until I realized there aren't any. But um, they, they, of course, there are times when, when you know, they'll play with each other and show, you know, I can paddle the canoe faster than you. Or, uh, but usually they don't have games like this. In fact, one time when I was still a Christian missionary, I tried to organize a game day. I don't know why I thought of doing that, but I thought I would organize a game day. So I tried a race, and I showed them the race. And, and one guy, t they all take off, and one guy's in front, and he stops. And I said, what are you doing? Waiting for them to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so they tend to do things together, and uh, competition is not strongly developed. Okay, but this lady there, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that the Piraha don't talk about the past and the future. So how does that work in terms of storytelling? Do they have storytelling in terms of the past as well, or... Or is it, how do they go around having storytelling without not having past and future? And well, do they have different tenses as well? Uh, they don't mark tenses on the verb. Clearly the Pitaha know that something happened before or it's going to happen after. So they, they can talk about the past and future. They do not talk about the distant past or the distant future. So they don't have creation myths. I, tr I remember trying to collect creation myths and I said, so what was the world like long ago? What do you mean? You know, long ago, what was the world like? I said, you know, when there were no trees. You've seen there are no trees? There was a time when there are no trees? No, but I mean, uh, you know, there were no trees. Who made the trees? Trees have always been here, as far as I know. Uh, so they don't have any creation myths. They don't have any stories about God. Uh, you tell them about God. And on the film, if you see the full version of the documentary, the Pinahas say, we really don't want what's up there. We, we like what's down here that we can see. Um, and uh, seems to work. <laughs> Thank you very much for your talk. Um, is this working? Yes, seems to be. I've just been sitting here, we're at the LSE, and I've just been sitting here thinking about an, a numeric um, cognition. And I just, is the division of labor within the tribe, is there. Um, exchange? How do, they, how do they manage sort of trade and th those sorts of affairs well, say, without well, numbers and the, 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 the concept? Of, of turns out that you more can... More or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, you can, you can get big pile, little pile. They do have that. They don't say, they don't have specific words to mark bigger pile. Well, say, so you take a bunch of Brazil nuts. You're a pitaha, you, the river boats come up, and you know they like Brazil nuts. So you carry this big 50 kilos of Brazil nuts, and you dump it on the floor of the boat. What's he going to give you? You don't know, but it better be a big pile. And if, it's, if it doesn't seem as big as what the other guy gave you, you're not going to trade with him anymore. 
Do you need numbers for that? Say I tell somebody I want, to, I want three fish. That doesn't make any sense. You're going to get the fish. I mean, if you want a lot of fish, you're going to owe me a lot of fish. Um, so they have those kinds of concepts. Somebody asks, you mean mothers don't know how many children they have? Why would a mother need to know how many children she has? <laughs> she knows all their names. She knows what they look like. She knows what she feels about them. In fact, it can be a disadvantage to count them. If you saw the great American movie Home Alone, when Macaulay Culkin was left behind, his parents left him behind because they counted everybody and counted the neighbor boy. Then the neighbor boy went home and he was upstairs sleeping, but a Pinaha mother would have never left him. She looks him in the face. Oh, you're here, you're here, you're here. She doesn't think, do I have any more children? She knows how many children she has, but not by number. Thank you. There was a question to your left, so if you can pass the microphone. Mm -hmm. Hi, I was wondering um, on your position of language and thought, because um, you were saying that um, they don't express numbers, but they, however, have the concept of counting and numeracy. Um, no, they don't have the concept of counting and numeracy. So they don't have the concept at all. Right. So would you think that language influences thought? As you said, recursion is in thought, but then some languages have recursion, some don't. Um, I believe that language, is influ language influences thought. I believe thought influences language. I believe language influences culture, and I believe culture influences language, and culture influences thought. So it's not just a matter of going in one direction. All these things are symbiotic. They work together to create the whole. So yes, it's true that some, you know, so my son's recent article, I'm just so happy to see my son's name on an article that I don't care that he's wrong. And the fact <laughs> he argues that it is they don't count because they don't have numbers. I argue that they don't have numbers and they don't count because they don't need either. That it's the culture that does it. But there's a fine difference. I think it's important, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. And just because they can't express regret, they don't have the concept of it? They don't, they don't seem to show any signs of worry. I haven't done psychoanalysis with them, and you really would have to do something like that to say they don't have regret. But I, I remember during my Christian days when I was trying to tell them a story about how God had been so good and changed my life, I told them about my stepmother committing suicide. It was a very painful story for me. So I went into this in great detail and told them, and I finished my story, and I told them how God changed my life, and they all burst out laughing. <laughs> they laughed, and I said, what are you laughing for? You people kill yourselves? That's the stupidest thing we ever heard of. <laughs> so um, they don't have a concept of suicide, and you don't see people sitting around depressed and worried. I mean, I've never seen. Part of the reason is if you do that, nobody's going to feed you. You've got to feed yourself. Uh, you've got a responsibility to yourself and to your children. Uh, but I've just never seen any signs of it. I have not done any systematic studies of it. But so far, the evidence looks like they're pretty happy. Going back to the video you showed earlier on, I was curious about why they would have the same word for so many different things. It didn't seem to be connected at all. Well, it's actually not the same word. It's the tones. So, for example, Mandarin and Korean and other languages have tones. So the word for ear, awe, is I can whistle it. The word for skin, awe. The word for foreigner, awe. The word for hand, awe. The word for Brazil nut, awe. So if you can hear the tones, they're different words. Um, we, do this we do something like this in English. So what's the difference between contract and contract? Uh, verbs versus nouns. We do this, and that's the use of pitch. 
So even English has this. In fact, English uses pitch in ways, frequency of the vocal cords, which produces tones and melodies and all of this. English intonation is fundamentally uses pitch. So he's coming. The high pitch indicates I don't know the answer. He's coming. The low pitch indicates I do know the answer. Uh, he's coming indicates I'm not particularly pleased with that answer. <laughs> so we use pitch to indicate a range of things in English. We just don't use it quite the same way that Peter Haas do. I assume that they don't keep any written records when you, they don't do any writing. Do you think how, if they did, how do you think that would evolve the language? Well, they wanted to learn to read and write because they saw me writing all the time. And, you know, I, I was writing all the time. So the Brazilian riverboat came up, and, and they have a, a pidgin language, a sort of very uh, simple trade language they use to communicate with Brazilians. And the Brazilians said, he speaks the language. How does he speak the language? And they said, he sits on his butt all day and writes things. Um, and so they saw me writing, so they, they would start to give me little squiggles and tell me what they meant. And then they realized there was actually a system to it, so they asked me if I could give them classes. And so we started classes, um, and I would, I, one day I wrote on the board the, the word Miggy, and they all read Miggy, and I thought, this is great. This was pretty quick, and then they all started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing for? That sounds just like our word for ground. I said, it is your word for ground. Oh, no, we don't write our language. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, well, we don't want that. <laughs> so that was the end of literacy. <laughs> Question over here. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I was just wondering if you could touch more on the the way that men were using whistling yeah. and the women using humming. Is that because the men know that the women can't understand whistling, or no, the, the women understand it perfectly? Oh, okay. They understand it just fine. They just don't use it. Here's another interesting thing: men have three vowels and eight consonants. Women have three vowels and seven consonants. Women have, where men have S and H, women only have H for both of those. Also, women, when they make consonants, they, their tongue goes not as far up in the mouth, and the back of their throat is more restricted. That means they not only have fewer consonants, but a smaller space to make them in. What does that mean? I, it just means that there's women's speech and men's speech. I'm not going to get too far in the analysis of what that means, but women use a smaller articulatory space. And that's another way in which culture clearly affects language. Thanks. Um, you've indicated that there's some controversy about your your work, and it's not very welcome in the Chomsky camp. But what's what's the what's their main objection to what you say, and what do you deal with it? Because I, I don't know what the controversy is like. What's your main obstacle that you have to? It's hard for me to say. I've been told uh, lots of reasons uh, that have to do with my parentage and all sorts of things. But uh, um, it seems to be the fact that uh, Chomsky's work over the last 60 years has been very rich and important in the history of linguistics. But it's really nothing formal has remained. He started off talking about deep structure and surface structure. All, none of these ideas are around today. About the only core idea for Chomsky that remains is recursion and universal grammar. In Chomsky's theory, there's a recursive process that builds all structures in human grammars. And it's not, if, if that doesn't exist, if that's not necessary, there's nothing left of the theory. This is, you know, many linguists have discussed 
I've seen linguists discuss why, why do they get so mad at Dan? Because it's an interesting question sociologically. It's not interesting to experience it. Uh, part of it is because I'm an abrasive personality. And, uh, you know, so I take some of the blame. And, I, and, you know, when people say bad things about me, I, I don't tone it down. Um, but basically it comes down to that. If I'm right, that's wrong. And therefore I can't possibly be right. And it's wrong. The press also irritates people. Because, you know, for some reason this gets a lot of press. Um, probably because... Chomsky's so famous, um, and that irritates people. But I don't write the press reports. I answer questions, and people use that however they want to. You can find out what I believe by reading the book. And my favorite review of the book so far has, although the one in the Sunday Times, I love Brian Appleyard. I could have written that myself. I love that man. But uh, the one in The Economist said that it was modest and reasonable. Um, I like that. I like that. That's what I tried to be in the book. Yes, but uh, for instance, um, Jeffrey Heath in his Australian grammar also kind of states that there is no recursion in the, in the language, but they don't attack him. That's right. Because, um, why? I'm trying to think. <laughs> I, I, will, uh, yeah, I know Jeff really well, and he's a, he's a brilliant field worker, so I'm going to try to get some of the ire directed his way for a change. <laughs> uh, can I have a question here, please? Mm -hmm. Hi there. Um, I was wondering, with the spread of especially English and also Spanish and the globalization of language generally, and the fact that these smaller languages do tend to be dying out somewhat, do you think that in the future that's going to change the study of how language works? I think that we're going to a lot of these languages will disappear before we ever study them, which will mean we will never fully understand the full range of human capabilities. The more people, the more these languages disappear, the greater the loss for science and what we can figure out about what it means to be human. Uh, there, there are so many levels at which all humans lose when each language is lost. To me, the best analogy is from, you know, I, I have profound taste, so the best analogy for me is Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars <laughs> when, when the planet, whatever it was, was destroyed. And he said, uh, you know, something has happened to the Force. That's sort of how I feel about losing an individual language. Something has happened to the force of human beings that can never be recovered. Hi. Um, innovation and imitation. Um, I wonder if you have a view or can expand a bit more on what it is that makes innovations stick or catch on, um, both in language and more broadly in our society, and whether that's primarily just about their usefulness or whether it's more broad than that. It doesn't seem to just be usefulness. I mean, there are a lot of changes that happen to languages over time, expressions that catch on, that become very popular. And if we look at styles, you know, um, I notice that uh, I don't see any hot pants in the States anymore, but I've seen quite a few of them since I've been over here. Uh, I, I suppose they're called hot pants. But uh, uh, why do those catch on? Why does a joke catch on? Why is some joke funny? I don't really know. Uh, I don't think anybody has a good answer, because it's not just utility. Um, there's something about it that uh, it has to do with the relative prestige, maybe, of who started it. It has to do with, so there's some utility in there, but there are a number of other things. So I don't think people know why language changes, languages change exactly the way they do, why new words become popular, why new products become popular. Uh, sometimes it's hard to figure. I mean, I have never played a video game in my life. As far as I know, I never will, although I know a lot of people who do. It's just not going to catch on with me. I'm the wrong, the wrong place. I still, uh, 
you know, my, my iTunes library of about 10,000 songs um, has a few things after 1969, but not much. Yes, and the question there. Well, first of all, Dan, thank you very much for the plug for yeah. my book. And, um, <laughs> the word. and thank you even more for emphasizing um, endangered languages, which is really great to see brought in um, as an implication of this work. But I just, um, as an ex-Chomskyan myself, I just wanted to try and put you, at least to articulate your position a bit. Um, the thing about human language is that it is learnt by little children and they, there's been quite a lot of studies done to show the way children learn language and there is a, a clear process by which this happens and that certain things don't happen if they aren't done soon enough. So for example if you're learning somebody else's language and you get exposed to it too late, probably your phonology, your phonetics will never be quite perfect. Right. Those sort of things suggest um, that there's something pretty uh, intimate about human brains and language, and maybe universal grammar is a way of getting at that. Maybe it's a too crude a way, and it's a, universal grammar sort of fades off. But nevertheless, you haven't actually said anything about maturation. I do in the book. Oh, I do in the book, and let me just say that um, children are ferocious little learners. They learn language, they learn all sorts of things, probably faster than adults. Language is just one of the many things. Piaget actually had a good answer to that many years before Universal Grammar, and he said, part of what children do when they learn their first language is construct their own identity. And in the process of constructing who they are, the language learning process for them is very different than the language learning process for an adult, which is learning another language not to construct their first identity, but for any number of other reasons. Having said that, I do believe that there are adults that have learned languages as adults that speak them at native speaker level. You'd have to show that children learn languages better than adults, you'd have to do more studies than we've currently done. To show that the stages of language development are unique to language, you would have to be able to distinguish and tease those apart from all other forms of development that children go through. And there are no non-controversial studies that separate those. So the maturation is certainly real. It's certainly something that happens. Children learn first languages better than adults learn second languages on the most part. Whether it's universal, I don't know. We also don't know if everybody learns to speak equally well. This is a common claim of universal grammar. All people learn to speak equally well by a certain age. I don't know if that's true. But how, do I, how would I know it's true? You'd have to do studies. You'd have to be able to test and say what it means to say. And, and uh, I think that people learn language just good enough, just good enough to get by. That's how most of us do it. If I need to make academic discourse, I will learn how to communicate in such a way that I can do it. Otherwise, with my buddies, I'm not going to talk like the way I'm talking to you right now. I'll talk in some other way. And it depends on the friends you keep, how you're going to learn to speak. So I think I answer it in the book. I'm sure not everybody will be convinced. Uh, some people will be really angry. Um, I, know, I know somebody with the initials SP who is not real happy with it, but uh, the name rhymes with Pinker. Uh, uh, yes, we'll take one last question and uh, we'll have to finish. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your talk. Um, language is so much about agreement and you talked about how, on, how some people on one side of the river uh, develop a different language to the people on the other side of the river. Is there any evidence in, in, uh, that you've come across where 
those different people are interested in the differences. I mean, you talk about the importance of studying endangered languages. Globalization is basically, um, or for all its benefits, are, is creating uh, a lack of diversity, you could say. So is there something that is going to encourage us as human beings to be open to what is different, a different language? We tend to act in our own self-interest. We have several forces at, at play within us at any one time. One of the strongest forces is tribalism. The, the define our own group, the group that we feel comfortable in, the group that we most imitate. And how do we define other groups? Like the Pitaha, we may call them crooked. Like the Greeks, we may call them barbarians. Like uh, some people who are very religious, we may call them infidels. But we define our own group, and we people who are outside that group are somehow inferior to us. This is, unfortunately, a natural human tendency. And to overcome it, we have to have strong self-interest. Uh, how we ever overcome it amazes me, but we have overcome it. In the history of the world, humans are the only species that I know about that have worked to feed others that have no chance to pay them back, for example. So you mean somewhere we have to have a self-interest, not only in, in something different? Yeah, it, it's yeah. not, I mean, some people like to learn things that are different. You'll find inquisitive personalities, but there has to be self-interest. Having said that, humans are cooperators and have an altruism that hasn't really been well explained, uh, why we want to help others that don't have our genes. And somehow we do. You know, we risk our lives for people we don't even know. That's not the selfish gene explaining that behavior. Uh, there's just something about that that uh, I find admirable. So I don't always regret being a human being. Yes, Thank you. I, I think on this um, marvelously positive note, <laughs> we have to finish uh, uh, the lecture. I just want to remind you that Professor Everett will be signing his book outside the theater, and I would like to uh, thank Professor Everett for the wonderful talk and um, the fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.